Last week we started going through a commitment to prayer, part, part one, and uh, this morning, Lord willing, part two. And I was reminded uh, years ago we had um, a, a national couple that was helping us in one of our church plants, and uh, their, their little girl uh, named Olivia really wanted a dog. And she had talked to her parents about a dog, and of course, they did not, uh, they didn't want a dog, they didn't feel like they could have, you know, that they had the space and the time, and so they kept telling her no, and, and her mom overheard her praying one night, just sincerely, you know, as could be, and so Olivia was, you know, lifting her voice in prayer and was saying, you know, God, just please help my parents to, you know, just change their heart and uh, to be able to give us a dog, and it would be so fun, and, and God... I know that you can do miracles and that you have, uh, you know, healed people and that people have crossed over on dry land. And so, Lord, I know that you can do this. And, of course, her mom told us later and just laughed and, and was certainly touched uh, by her daughter's prayer. And from an early age, we can begin to talk to God. And sometimes it's uh, certainly self-centered, uh, some of our prayers, but it's a good beginning to be able to, to, to know we can talk to God at any time. He is powerful. He does hear. Uh, he doesn't always answer as we wish, but he does answer in according to his plan, which is best. So let's look back at the passage in James chapter 5. We'll start in verse 13 and then continue through uh, verse 18, which we'll look at more specifically those last few verses uh, this morning. So James 5 and verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering... Let him praise. Anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We left off last week as we were looking at verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So we looked at the role uh, of the sick person, the role of the elders, uh, the role of Christ, the promise of healing. But uh, focus in on, with me on James 5, uh, 15 again, and then the last part. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So you may be, remember that we're looking at kind of two possible interpretations. Uh, the Greek word for sick can mean a physical sickness, but it can also and has been translated uh, 13 times, I believe, in the, new, in the epistles of the New Testament as weary or weak. But we're looking, first of all, as a possible interpretation, if it is to be understood as a physical sickness. Uh, we looked at the role of the sick person, that they're supposed to, you know, if it's a serious sickness, they're supposed to evaluate themselves before Christ. See if there's any reason that God may be disciplining them. Uh, they're then to call on the elders, to have the elders pray. And uh, through that is a, a humbling of themselves before God, before spiritual leaders. And then the elders are supposed to prepare themselves spiritually. And also, you know, look if there's any way uh, that they're not being a righteous person. Because it says here the prayer of a righteous person has great power. The role of Christ, he's the one who heals. 
He can use different people as, as channels as we pray, as we pray to God. Uh, but God is the one who heals. And still to this day, we believe that, that God can heal and that we can pray for healing. But ultimately, we need to pray for his will to be done. Sometimes that's physical healing. And sometimes that is eternal and complete healing by taking someone home to be with him. But we come to this promise of forgiveness, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there's, sometimes there's confusion. You know, is all sickness then a result of sin? Uh, there are some movements in uh, the evangelical community that views sickness as just the presence of like specific demons. And so in order to get well, you need to go to these special services and have pastors or other leaders, you know, expel the demons of sickness out of you. Likewise, some of those same people believe that if you have marital problems or you have other relationship problems, then you just need to go to this special service and have those demons expelled out of you. But we look at here the promise of forgiveness. First of all, not all sickness is a result of sin. Not all sickness is a result of sin. In the Gospels, Jesus healed a man. In fact, we see in John chapter, uh, John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, after the God healed him, or Jesus healed a man, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? So those that were asking the question were thinking, okay, this man was blind, so he must have done something or his parents must have done something that warranted this type of, of handicap. But then Jesus answered and said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but notice this, but that the works of God might be displayed in him but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we see Jesus answered very clearly, says, not all sickness is a result of sin. In fact, as Jesus said, sometimes God allows sickness, God, God allows you know, handicaps and special needs, even to show his work in a greater way. You know, as we think about people who take hand tools and and they, they make you know, special things out of them, the more sophisticated the tools that a person uses, the less glory that the craftsman receives. Because you know, it would be easy for many of us to say, well, goodness, if I had tools like that. Sometimes people say this. I don't think this is quite true, but sometimes people say of photographers, well, if I had a camera like that, you know, I could take pictures like that. I, I, don't, I think there is still a lot of skill to it. But then the less sophisticated the tools are, the more archaic, the, 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 more simp the simpler the tool is, then the more glory that the craftsman receives because then as somebody looks at the, at the product and goes, wow, you made that with those tools? So sometimes God allows weakness and God allows sickness to an extent that as others watch on, they can see God's glory even greater through that person's life, whether it be through healing or continual power as the person serves God faithfully. So not all sickness is a result of sin. Some sickness, though, is a result of God's discipline. 1 Corinthians, if you'd go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Verses 27 through 30. 1 Corinthians 11, 
27 through 30. This is in the context of celebrating the Lord's Supper, and uh, you may remember that the Corinthian church was a problematic church. Sometimes we're tempted in 2022 and, and in recent years to go, boy, we just need to get back to the early church days. We have just, we've got to get back to what the early church was like. Well, let, let me tell you, the early church wasn't perfect <laughs> because there were still sinners. And there were still problems. And in the, in the Corinthian church, there were many problems. Some, you know, gro- gross, grotesque sinful problems. And Paul is addressing one in 1 Corinthians 11 that many were taking the Lord's Supper and participating in that in a, in a way that wasn't worthy. Jump in at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And that's why we take time. It, it shouldn't only be done right before the Lord's Supper is taken in a, in a church or in a gathering. But that's why we set aside time to, to pray. And I often encourage you, and, I, and it's a challenge to myself as well, to think through, God, is there unresolved sin that I need to take care of? So that's why we examine ourselves. We see this, this passage, it makes that clear. And then verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Some versions talk about you know, sleep, but it's in an obvious context of physical death. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So when we do have sickness, and especially maybe a prolonged sickness, uh, there's certainly reason for us to come before the Lord and say, Lord, is there unresolved sin in my life? You know, what can I learn through this process? But be encouraged that once we, if we have any unresolved sin and we've resolved that before the Lord, we can be encouraged to know that most often, I would imagine, it seems that most often sickness is just a result of us living in a broken world. And it can be used, something that God uses to draw us closer to himself. But all sickness is not a result of sin. Someone, as we looked at the role of the sick person, it indicates that this person is going to examine himself and evaluate himself before the Lord. And upon doing that, then it says, if, it doesn't say because he has committed sins. It says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So as we have a repentant heart and come before the Lord then we certainly know that we will be forgiven. Now, secondly, if we look at this as a spiritual weakness interpretation, going back to James chapter 5 and verse 14, is anyone among you sick? In many other instances throughout the epistles in the New Testament, that same Greek word is translated weak or weary. So if we were to look at this passage and understand it in the sense in verse 14, is anyone among you weak? Is anyone among you weary? What are some general principles that we can, can learn from that? Well, leave some here in James, but 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. We see Paul encouraging the brothers of Christ in the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, it says, And we urge you, brothers... 
Admonish the idol, the idea of confrontation. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And this is the, the same idea, same, same root Greek word there. Help the weak. Translated in James 5.14 in most English translations as sick, but here we see the same word as help the weak. Be patient with them all. So in addition, we've already looked at in addition, you know, initially, uh, the first part of this passage is, is anybody you know, among you, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. So we have this responsibility and privilege to pray individually. We have the responsibility also and the privilege uh, to pray with the elders. So there are times when God uh, leads believers and it's important that believers call upon more mature believers and, and spiritual leaders to pray with them. In a time maybe of, of discouragement, in a time of confusion, in a time where a lot of the circumstances seem to cloud out maybe some of the promises and, and principles of Scripture, there's wisdom in calling for spiritual leaders and say, listen, I, I need help. I'm feeling weak right now. I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And it's a challenge to us as leaders, whether it be pastors, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, or more mature believers in the congregation, that as we have opportunity, that we don't just kind of outsource this all the time. Now, God has gifted some people in understanding Scripture and being able to apply that to to practical life situations, and there, I believe there's uh, some very godly uh, parachurch counseling ministries. But I believe in accordance with Scripture and the design of the local church and the calling of, of pastors and elders, and then in the growth of mature believers, the bulk of counseling should be done within the body of the local church. As people are studying Scripture, and this is a challenge to me to continue to be a student of God's Word and learning and, and investing and then looking at the principles of Scripture and applying those in a, in a wise way to the problems that we face so that when someone is weary, someone is spiritually weak and weary, they can call and say, listen, I need prayer, I need help. And they can come alongside of that brother or sister and say, hey, here's some things that Maybe I've learned through experience. Or maybe these are some things that are clear in Scripture, and I want to share how God can use these specifically in your situation and not just outsource everything. So the person in this, in this sense would still need to evaluate himself, you know, spiritually. Yeah, I'm overwhelmed. Yes, I feel weak. But is there unresolved sin? God, are there are some things you know, that I need to deal with in my life when I, as I'm calling upon the elders and the pastors to come and pray with me? And then it, it is an act of humility. It's humbling sometimes to admit, I need help. I, I don't have it all together. It's humbling sometimes to, to be honest and say, I'm, I'm struggling. I do have some questions. I do have some doubt. But yet, don't we all? Don't we all come across some of those dark moments, chapters? Sometimes you may feel like, boy, it's not a chapter for me, Pastor. It's like a set of encyclopedias. I mean, it's just like constantly. Well, come before others. Come before you. Call you know, your spiritual leaders. 
Say, listen, pray with me. Help me. I'm spiritually weak. I'm weary. Then as that individual, as we look in James chapter 5 and verse 16, if we consider this in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? If we consider that to mean is anyone among you weary or spiritually weak, then think about that in context now with verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As we look at all the other teachings of Scripture, I don't believe that this passage is teaching that we have a responsibility to confess our sins to another believer for forgiveness. But I do think in the context we can understand, and even in other parts of Scripture we can understand, there is great benefit of having spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ that we can be open and honest and transparent and not always have to put on Sunday face and happy face and, yeah, everything's great, God is good, you know, all the time, and all the time God is good. But to be able to honestly say, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling, and I'm struggling maybe in these areas, and I'm having some, some difficulties in, in this temptation that seems to just be just driving home. And as we confess our sins, as we openly admit those things, talk about it in a wise way. It's not something that we just you know, hang out our dirty laundry for everybody. But as we grow together, as we learn some that we, can, that we you know, deem to be spiritually mature, that can uh, take that informi- information wisely and then respond with Scripture and principles, then we see great benefit in verse 16. As you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, made complete, restored, strengthened. So someone who's in this this situation should not only seek this out, it shouldn't just be a one-time thing, but there's great benefit in maintaining these relationships. This is one of the goals of even having growth groups on Sunday and then community groups during the middle of the week is to have other opportunities that foster an idea of we, we want to do life together. And we want to openly talk about some of the praises that we have, but also some of the struggles you know, that we experience. And that brings us to kind of the second or third point, rather. What does it mean to pray together as God's family? We pray together individually. Is anybody suffering? Verse 13 says, let him praise. Anybody's cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick, verse 14, or spiritually weak or weary? Then let him call the elders. But now we see, specifically in verse 16, praying with God's family. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I believe it's important as we look at this first phrase here. Therefore, confess your sins one another praying purely to pray in a pure way with a pure heart now again i don't believe this passage is teaching that there is an elite group of people that we are to confess our sins to for forgiveness for we see in first timothy 2 uh, verse 5 first timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 for there is one god and there is one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. But as we look, first of all, our confession 
of sin should be made before God vertically. So praying purely before God. Uh, Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. David had messed up big time as he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, but not only that, that, he had become responsible for um, the the death of a man. He, He had become a murderer. And in Psalm 51, we see David pouring his heart out, first of all, to God. So it requires, as we pray purely before God, it requires genuine confession to God. Psalm 51, notice with me in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. About 15 psalms later, Psalm 66 Look with me in that passage, Psalm 66 and verse 16 through 20. David further claims here in this psalm, verse 16 of Psalm 66, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So as we pray purely before God, this is, this is a requirement. This is what believers are, are supposed to do as we come to God in prayer. And David says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love for me. So not only does this require a genuine confession before God, but it also, it opens and provides open conversation with God. Look with me in Romans chapter 8. It provides open conversation with God. Romans chapter 8. And as you turn in there, I want to recount, and I may have shared part of the story before, but when I was, uh, we were in Albany, Georgia, and uh, I remember for whatever reason, this still is kind of uh, a playback m- movie in my mind. A family brought over some bananas. I don't know why, but they dropped off some bananas at our house, and I was hungry, and I wanted a banana. But my dad said, no, not, not right now. You can't have a banana right now. But then he left the room. So in my I think I was probably four or so. And so in the, in the wisdom of my four-year-old brain, I thought, well, he's not here anymore. But the bananas still are. So I got a banana, and I started to chow down on a banana, and I was happy and satisfied. And then I heard Dad starting to walk back in the room. It's like, oh. I had a little, and I can remember this as like a little reader. You know, the, you know Tom can swim. Tom can run, you know, those types. So it was little, this little paperback reader book on the table. And I thought, okay. So I grabbed that and put both hands behind my back. Hey, hey Dad. Son, what you doing? Oh, just, yeah, just here. What you got in your hand? Got this little book. 
what do you have in your other hand? So I did the little switcheroo behind. I was like, yeah, just the book, Dad. Just the book. He knew right away that I was lying. And I had the banana behind my back. In that moment, I didn't have open conversation with Dad. I couldn't talk to Dad about, hey, Dad, you know, there's been something I've been wanting to talk about, you know, in my four-year-old uh, context here. I couldn't, you know, say, Dad, you want to go throw the ball Dad, you want to sit down? You want to play a board game? Dad, I didn't have open conversation because I had broken communion with Dad. I was still his son. wasn't going to lose that sonship. But I didn't have open conversation because there was unresolved conflict between me and him. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Sometimes people may say, Boy, God, it, Pastor, it just seems like God is silent. It just seems like he's not around. It doesn't seem like he listens. But one of the first things that we should do is evaluate our life in accordance with Romans 18. Let's look at this. Verse 12. Romans 8, rather. Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice the next phrase. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And this is key. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, what? Wow. You can talk to him like I talked to Dad. But it requires this open confession and an open conversation with God. Let's continue on. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So as we're, as we're children of his, we have this open conversation. We have the promise of inheritance. So there's that future uh, expectation. Then look at verse 26, same chapter, Romans 8 and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Praise God for that. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But who, him, who intercedes for us? The Spirit. So as we're living for Him, as we are allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us, we're being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the basic idea. It's not necessarily just this mystical feeling and this special event, but it's allowing the Holy Spirit to control us. And as we're pursuing the fruits of the Spirit, as we're obeying Jesus Christ and His Word, then as He is guiding our life, even though we don't even know how to pray so, so many times, there's an open conversation with God because God himself, the Holy Spirit within us, is interceding on our behalf to God the Father. So it says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. How? According to to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit who abides within us can take prayers that sometimes may be tainted with some of our selfish desires or just may be limited because of our limited knowledge and, and, and ideas. 
And the Holy Spirit can take those and intercede on our, on our behalf according to the will of God the Father. It provides this open conversation with God. And we know, verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that verse is one that we all want to cling to. We all want to, yeah, man, all things are going to work together for good. But yet we oftentimes fail to emphasize and live out and pray, God, help me to not live for the flesh. Help me to live for the Spirit. Help me to, to, to mortify, to put to death the, the things of the Spirit. And through my open confession before you that I can pray purely before God. As you will hear my prayers and then as there's that open conversation. Now I've been asked before, even by some unbelievers, say, Pastor David, does God, can he not hear the prayers of unbelievers or of backslidden Christians? I mean, he obviously can. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. And it's only by his mercy will he respond to those prayers. So if we have unresolved sin, could God still answer a prayer? Well, I mean, he could be merciful and decide to bless us even with unresolved sin. But as we seek to follow him as our shepherd, and even in John 10 it says the shepherd will hear his voice and follow him, then we should confess our sins and have that open conversation with him. Then as that happens, as we have this open conversation with God, the vertical relationship, then that genuine confession will automatically be mirrored, will be reflected in our horizontal relationships with others. So it's impossible for me to say, yeah, everything is right between me and God, but boy, between me and my wife, or between me and my son, or between me and and Marco, or me and Austin, oh, oh my goodness. No. As I live and pray in a pure way before God, then that confession will be automatically reflected in the horizontal relationships before others. So we see that we're to pray purely. Pure relationship with God will be reflected in a pure relationship within uh, God's family. Look, look with me in James 5, 16 one more time. It says, Therefore confess your sins to one another. So purity before God, but also purity before others. Pure relationship with God will be reflected in pure relationships within God's family. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Sometimes we may be tempted to think or maybe even say, boy, I love God, I just don't like my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love God, I just have a problem with my wife. I love God, but I just have a problem with this child right now. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And this last phrase is kind of, kind of a hard phrase. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So it is impossible for me to have a good relationship with God if I am not also pursuing 
a good relation horizontally with my wife. Now, she, there may be a time in our life where she doesn't respond to that. And there's certainly couples where the man or the woman loves God and they're trying to do right and the spouse doesn't. Maybe backslidden, maybe an unbeliever, but doesn't love that and won't respond to that. But as far as the individual goes that loves God in pursuing that relationship and living in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. So certainly... You see the correlation even in the marriage, but then it goes on the very next verse, verse 8. Finally, and then this verse talks to to who? To, To what specific group? Or is there a specific group? This next verse. Everyone, all of you. So now it's not just for husbands, but it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away. That's the underlying understanding of confession, of repentance, is to turn away, have a new direction. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Then verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. A pure relationship will be reflected in pure, a pure relationship with God will be reflected in pure relationships within God's family. Pure relationships with others will be marked by truthful and transparent fellowship. So instead of, it says, you know, in James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. So instead of hiding our sins, instead of, you know, having kind of one personality, you know, to our church family and another personality maybe at work and then maybe a third one uh, at home, it says, no, we're to confess our sins to one another. Pray for one another. And that our relationship should be marked with truthful and transparent fellowship. And as we then humble ourselves and as we're talking about our sin openly, as we we share, yeah, we're struggling in this area, and then allow the prayer of a righteous person to encourage us, to help us refocus, kind of redirect our mind back on Scripture and back on the Lord Jesus Christ, then the prayer of the righteous is powerful. So in this way, we, one of the main motivations is that we're recruiting basically other people. I, I accept your help. I want you to come alongside of me. I, I need that. I, I respect and I appreciate your prayers and your spiritual help for me. And then also in James 5.16 that we see purity in our relationship with God and others will produce a healthy church. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, James 5, 16, and pray for one another that you may be healed, that you may be restored, that you may be made whole. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I have no doubt that that countless marriages could have been restored. Countless parent-child relationships could have been salvaged. 
countless friendships could have been preserved, if individuals had been truthful and transparent and said, we need help and we need the prayers of a righteous person to redirect our minds, to renew our minds based on his word, that we can put off the old man, renew our mind, and then put on the new man. I have no doubt that countless marriages and parent-child relationships and friendships could be restored, could have been. And thankfully, when that happens, many times we see God work in phenomenal ways. And we see restoration happen. So as we confess our sins to one another, as we talk about that, as we look in Scripture together, as we're accountable to each other, as we share principles and promises that God has used to help us, it says then you're healed, you're restored, you're made whole. Look with me back at, again, that phrase, pray for one another. So not only are we supposed to pray purely, but we're to pray selflessly. We're to pray selflessly, not selfishly, but selflessly. God never meant for us to go on the journey alone, the spiritual journey alone. Never meant, never intended for the Christian life to be, to be done and the journey to be done alone. And these are some very clear evidences of that when James, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, pray for one another. Think about others outside of yourself. We see earlier in James that our outward prayers will reflect our inward passions. Look, look back at James chapter 4. Our outward prayers will reflect our inward passions. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because why? You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think many of us are guilty in our prayers as we come before God. Boy, we are thinking about what do I need? What's going to make David Huffman happy? What's going to bring David Huffman satisfaction? And then my, the temptation then is to go before God and say, God, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. This is my list. Now I'm just waiting for you to act to make me happy. And James says, pray for one another. Don't pray for your selfish passions so that you can get the things that, that you want, but pray for one another. Oh, it was about two months ago, I guess, and Christina was in a class. I may have shared this at some point, but Christina was in a class, and a classmate, you know, the, the teacher opened the class and said, any prayer requests, we're going to start with prayer. And, and a classmate raised her hand who was in a different society, different girls' society that do intramural sports. Christina's um, in one. This girl was in another. Um, and so this girl raised her hand. She says, yes, I want to pray for Christina because tonight... They're going to play in the championship game, and Christina, she's just going to need help because they're going to lose. Of course, that didn't make Christina very happy. And thankfully, a wise, older teacher says, well, I don't think we're going to pray for that. I don't think that's a great prayer request. 
So in sarcasm, there's a little bit of kind of a selfish taint to, in essence, we want our society to win, and Christina's really going to have a hard time tonight, so we need to pray for her. Emo Phillips, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. Emo Phillips, I, I, don't, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but he's a stand-up comedian. I'm sure he says a ton of stuff that I don't agree with, so in no way do I, do I sponsor or think that he is a great man. But he said something that kind of reveals sometimes the way we think. He said something about prayer. He said, when I was a kid, I used to pray every night for a bicycle But then in his mind, he concluded that God didn't work that way. So then he went out and stole a bicycle and just prayed for God to forgive him. So that was kind of how he thought. Well, I'm going to pray, you know, God, give me a new bicycle, give me a new bicycle. No bicycle came. All right, I'll just steal one. And then I'll just pray and ask God to forgive. And sometimes we think that way. It's better to ask forgiveness than, what's the phrase? Permission. And sometimes we think about that with God. I'm just going to plow ahead. I'm going to try to make my plan happen. And then if I sin in the midst, along the way, then I'll just say, God, forgive me. You know, just human, fell again. But as we focus on, no, Lord, help me to pray for one another. Help me not just to pray for self. Lord, spare me when when my prayers end up being just oftentimes kind of back towards me and what I need and what I want and what I think is going to make me happy. Help me to pray for one another. Our outward prayers will reflect our inward passions. And our prayers should reflect our Savior's focus on others. If we're learning to pray as Christ prayed, as we're we're trying to be disciples or followers of Jesus Christ, then we can learn from him. Look at his his attitude in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 8. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 8. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's easy to read, tough to live out. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking to the Philippian church and he's anchoring this truth back to Jesus Christ. He says, you know, what I'm talking about, all this is modeled, was exemplified in the person and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5 again, which is yours in in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Sometimes as we're called upon to serve humbly, and maybe sometimes we even feel pressured to serve in a way that we don't feel really gives us the dignity that we deserve, may may we be reminded, oh my, how, how slight of a comparison am I experiencing compared to Jesus Christ? And all that he emptied himself of, 
and in all the ways that he focused on others, even while on the cross, remember, forgive them, he prayed. Even on the cross, he looks at John and he says, you know, take care of, take care of Mary, take care of, I mean, he's thinking of others. I'm telling you, when I'm sick, my temptation is not to be thinking and trying to care for everybody else. My temptation is to go, okay, now it's my turn. I'm sick. But as Jesus suffered intense suffering, he's still thinking about others and praying for, another, for others. John 17, if you want to look, we see the high priestly prayer. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to take, I'm just going to read some, high, some things that I've bolded. You're welcome to try to follow along. Uh, don't be frustrated if you can't kind of follow all the, all the pieces, but we're, I'm in John 17 and starting in verse 9. And I'm going to pick out some of the things in this high priestly prayer of how Jesus Christ prayed for us and prayed for others. Verse 9, he starts out and says, I am praying for them. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. He's praying for our unity. There's a phrase in verse 13 that says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Praying for us to have true joy. Verse 15, if you, if you take some of the words and, and basically just kind of pull this one phrase out, you can see, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying for our spiritual victory. Verse 17, sanctify them in, in the truth. The latter part of verse 18, that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's praying that we would have devotion to God's truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know, that's us. So even in this high priestly prayer, he had us in mind. I wasn't going to be born until 1976. But in this very moment, he says, I don't ask just for these only, but also for those, David Huffman, Kim Huffman, Jessica Huffman, and then all the other believers in this, in this crowd, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that, verse 21, they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He prayed for genuine community, that we would have genuine community. Verse 23, the latter part of the verse, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He prayed that we would have gospel witness. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. He gave us an eternal perspective here to not just think about what we're facing on earth and the, and the temptations and circumstances, but that we would think eternally. And we see in the latter part of verse 26. All this keeping in mind, he started off with verse 9, I am praying for them. So in every phrase that we think, we can remember he's praying these things for us. So the latter part of verse 28, basically we can understand, I am praying for them, verse 9, and the latter part of verse 28, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He prayed that we would feel loved 
and then that we, having that love in us, that we would be loving. So as we look at that passage, that is the type of prayer that I should pray for my children. It's the type of prayer I should pray for my wife. Those are the things that I should be praying for as I pray for you all. Those are the things that I hope that you will be praying for me. Praying for unity, praying for true joy, for spiritual victory, for devotion to God's truth, for genuine community, for gospel witness, for eternal perspective, to to feel the, the love of God and then to express the love of God. That we would be praying selflessly. Craig, and I'm probably slaughtering his last name, but Craig Groschel, pastor of Life Church, said this Your prayer for someone may or may not change them, but it always changes you. Your prayer for someone may or may not change them, but it always changes you. So as we pray selflessly, even if we don't see the results happen in those that we're praying for, that act, as we come before God, as we're open, openly talking to Him, that will change us. Then we see in James 5, 16 and 17, praying passionately. Praying passionately. The latter part of, of James 5, 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. God can do, uh, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So think about this. God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Now, those who are hearing this, as, as James wrote this, maybe one of the first epistles to be written, but as James wrote this, and then many of them were Jews who were hearing this for the first time or reading the letter, as they thought about Elijah, I would suspect that many of them probably didn't think about, about Elijah as having a lot in common with them. They were very familiar because of the Old Testament and the, and the traditions of the Jews and passing these things down and obviously the written record of Elijah. Elijah, um, he was miraculously fed by ravens. Remember our last Zoom service and Dad talked about operating you know, on a dried up brook? He was miraculously fed by ravens. When the brook dried up, then God, then he and the widow of Zarephath, along with her son, watched in a miraculous way how God took a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and then just kept replenishing that in a miraculous way so that they were fed, Scripture says, for many days. He raised the widow's son back to life. He called fire down from heaven in a powerful display of God's power. In contrast to the, the silent and the, the powerless false god of Baal, even as 450 prophets that, that served the false god Baal and was along with King Ahab and wicked you know, Jezebel, and Elijah, in, in sharp contrast to that, calls fire down from heaven to the altar in, in a powerful display saying, this is the true and only God. He prophesied the death of King Ahab's wife, the wicked Jezebel. He parted the Jordan River. He prophesied the, the death of the next king, King Ahaziah. So Elijah doesn't seem to be to us a man just kind of common. And then he was caught up in a whirlwind, taken to heaven at the end of his life. 
But yet we see in Scripture in 1 Kings 17, verse 11 reveals that Elijah was hungry. A little bit after that in 1 Kings 19, we read of a fearful and depressed Elijah. Yet, James, and even as we see in the Old Testament, when Elijah prayed, a man that could be hungry just like we get hungry, a man that could become fearful just like we can become fearful, a man that became depressed just like we can become depressed, but yet when he prayed passionately and fervently, God responded and answered in a powerful way. God can do extraordinary things through the prayers of ordinary people. God wants us to pray passionately in faith, believing that he can respond powerfully. The story is told of this little girl, and maybe you can identify with this. Sometimes it's easy for me, and I have to watch myself, especially like you know, praying before a meal or, or sometimes praying at the end of the day. Sometimes the same words come to mind. And if I'm not careful, I can just begin to say these kind of repeated prayers. And this little girl, stories told this little girl who, you know, learned the little prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. You know, she, she had learned that little prayer. But then she decided, you know, why does God, why do I need to repeat this every night? I'll just record myself. And then at night, I'll just push the play button and I'll play the prayer. Because, I mean, it's the same thing every night. Now, we as adults probably would never do that. You know, we're not going to push the little voice memo on our iPhone and go, okay, God, this is my prayer life. But sometimes prayer becomes so rote, prayer becomes so methodical that it's just a, God, thank you for the day you've given us. I pray that you'd just bless in everything that we do and that you would be glorified in all these ways. Amen. And we just kind of say some things that lose, are losing the passion, losing the fervor, losing the idea that we are definitely talk, talking to God, our Father. We're to pray passionately in faith that he can respond powerfully. You know, Hannah prayed for, in the Old Testament, Hannah prayed in such a way that the priest Eli thought she was drunk. She was praying with great fervor. She was praying with passion in such a way that Eli basically rebuked her and, and said, you know, you're drunk? But she responded in 1 Samuel 1.15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Now I ask myself, and I want you to ask yourself, when is the last time that you could say, I poured my soul out before God? And there's several times that I can think, even in, in, in the past, where I was facing some intense battles, sometimes spiritual, sometimes physical. And it's interesting that in a lot of the good times, I don't remember some of those prayers. But in some of those intense, low times of my life, I can remember coming to God and pouring out my soul and saying, God, I need your help. When's the last time we've done that? Hannah was pouring out her soul to the point that Eli thought she was drunk. We see that Ezra and Nehemiah, they were just challenged by the condition of Israel and the need for restoration, and they poured their hearts out in prayer to God, and he answered powerfully. Paul described Epaphras to the Colossian believers in Colossians 4.12. says, you know, he's always struggling 
on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Do we ever struggle in our prayers? Do we ever, do we ever come with, it, with that type of passion? And if we do, is it often or is it just every once in a great while? We're challenged to pray passionately. I read of an author, an author who made this statement. I, I felt like it was impactful. It says, Prayer is the act in which we approach God as living person. A thou to whom we speak, not an it that we talk about. Prayer is the attention that we give to the one who attends to us. It is the decision to approach God as the personal center, as our Lord and our Savior. Our entire lives gathered up and expressed in the approach of prayer. Timothy Keller, very, I, I respect him. I believe he loves God. He's been used of the Lord to help plant many churches and, and have a fruitful ministry in New York. He says this, You can't manufacture the unmistakable note of reality that only comes from speaking not toward God, but with God. And may God help us as we pray not to just speak toward God, not to just speak in a, in a, in, and converse in a general way and just kind of in a nonchalant, maybe memorized, rote fashion. But may God help us to pray passionately in faith that he can respond powerfully. This is, I believe, summed up in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then, this is awesome, let us then with confidence. Some versions have it, let us then come boldly and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.